Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome back Peter Kelly Detweiler. Peter Kelly Detweiler has 30 years of experience in the electric energy arena. He writes for Forbes.com and other publications on topics related to disruptive innovation and its impact on the electricity infrastructure. He provides strategic advice to clients and investors, helping them to navigate this transitional period. Peter is also the author of The Energy Switch, a book about how companies are transforming the electrical grid and the future of power. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thank you, Raj. Peter, how's your year been? You know, it's been an interesting, <coughs> excuse me, year as uh, as he coughs. Um, just, uh, you know, with everything going on with COVID and the global economy and some of the strangeness at that uh, global level. But uh, within my own life, things went really well. You know, I, I work from home. My wife works from home. We get to see each other all the time. We're on the phone constantly with, with our kids and loved ones and and so that's been great. It's been a good year that way. And then, you know, I was fortunate to have the, the book come out and had great responses with that. And I had some really interesting professional relationships as well. So for me, 2021, I feel kind of guilty in saying it was actually a pretty good year in many ways. I understand what you mean by the guilt. I also felt that this year, I felt it more prevalent last year when everything was locked down. And I mentioned probably because I enjoy time with my family. So that always felt good. And then to your point about being able to not only keep our current professional relationships and commitments, but also increase them while others are probably you know struggling. And so I, I, I felt the same guilt also. Yeah, I think it's a natural thing. I, I, I agree. And for those of you listening, we are recording this on December 21st, 2021. And I kind of want to go through, Peter, you know, what you saw happen this year. You mentioned the the book. I read the book. It's a great book. Uh, there's a couple of quotes that I want to go over here later with you. But what did you see from a broadly speaking, clean tech, green tech evolution here in 2021? And then we're going to switch over into 2022 and what you see coming down from a forecast perspective. Sure. So 2021, I think, you know, starts with that nasty little uh, carbon atom, right? Uh, and, and the the issues related to climate. I, I think it was pretty clear this year that there were a lot of anomalies in the U.S., Europe, around the planet. And so I think more recognition among many people that we have a serious problem that we have to marshal an increasingly large number of resources to address. So I, I think we set, and then obviously COP26, while it wasn't perfect, I think the level of intensity around those conversations was heartening. And then with, with respect to actual happenings on the ground. Um, if you look at, for example, electric vehicle sales in Europe, the numbers are really quite significant. And even here in this country, more than double what they were last year. So you see places, places like France where one in every six, six new vehicles has a plug in it. Um, we're not quite at that level yet. Um, Norway's, what, 80% of its new vehicles that are registered are electric. So, you know, some pretty good trends there, more models out there. And then and the other piece of that, the storage side, batteries driven by electric vehicles, costs are coming down, more batteries are being deployed across the entire energy landscape, particularly here in the United States, and often accompanying solar. Um, I, and, and that trend will just continue. Uh, then we saw a lot of announcements around offshore wind projects going forward, even uh, floating leases likely to happen on the West Coast, Oregon, California. The leases have been issued. They have to be floating technology. Uh, and then more community solar, more solar in general. And that industry, the especially the resi and behind the meter solar industry, getting really smart after COVID in terms of figuring out the digital tools 
to make the design and installations much more efficient. So it was pretty heartening to see that even though we had the massive stutter step in 2020 when COVID first came on in 2021, society generally figured out relatively quickly how to adapt and keep on moving. So we're still dealing with this acceleration of acceleration where tech gets better. And yes, we have some short-term perturbations in supply chain and so on, but I think the long-term prognosis still looks pretty good for costs falling across all these clean energy sectors. Now, you mentioned floating wind. For those that aren't quite familiar, you know, they probably understand the ones that are on the terrain and with the big, long poles. But can you explain what floating wind is and how it's different? Sure. Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. So first of all, in the North Sea, we saw the first turbines going in and they were relatively small, you know, four, six megawatt machines. Now we see machines, 12 megawatts, Siemens Gamesis testing 15 megawatt machines. These are all fixed structures offshore with monopiles or triangular jackets attached to the ocean floor. Where there's a continental shelf, that makes a lot of sense. But where there is no continental shelf, west coast of the United States, parts of Asia, etc., the idea is you take some kind of a floating uh, structure, like a spar, for example, and you put the wind turbine on top of that, and it sits out there and floats, and then it's tethered to the ocean floor via a cable. The beauty of that is these machines can potentially be enormous because the, the fixed structures have to withstand all those offshore stresses from storms. With a floating structure, you impart a lot of those stresses simply to the water around you. So these machines could be, well, we saw one, um, Vestas has a plan for a 27 megawatt floating offshore wind machine. Now, I think I've seen some writing also around combined floating wind and solar. Are you familiar with that? Yes, some, but the, so the floating, there's floating solar in shallow bays and that sort of thing. And floating wind is usually further offshore. Where I'm seeing the biggest combination right now, Raj, is wind and electrolyzers to make hydrogen uh, out of the electricity from the wind turbines and then shipping that back. And so those combos, you're starting to see a lot of conversations and diagrams around how that's likely to unfold. And I recently read an article about wind and data centers too. Yes, uh, data centers, Bitcoin mining, which is one perturbation of that. A lot of efforts right now to link up more and more renewables directly to um, those energy processing data factories, if you will. And companies like Microsoft and Google saying, we're going to try and do 24-7 match hourly match of our demand to the output of a combination of wind turbines and solar panels and batteries so that we can legitimately say we are being supplied constantly with renewables. Now, they're not quite there yet. AES has a contract with Google in Virginia that's at 90%, but the the planning is definitely there and, and, and wind will be a critical piece of that because it has much higher capacity factors in general than solar does. Um, just churns out a lot of energy for the installed capacity that it has. Now, wind and solar, obviously, generation. Um, where are you seeing storage? Well, the first place it goes is with solar because, among other things, well, there's two reasons. One, the investment tax credit. So if you supply a battery with over 75% solar energy that's metered, you get that percentage times the available investment track tax credit, and that doesn't exist for wind. And so that's one reason you see it. The other one is solar has a very, very predictable production profile, assuming no clouds, from eight in the morning to, say, four in the afternoon. And so there's this real value in time shifting the energy from that solar panel and moving it to the peak hours of the day. So you're starting to see um, even retrofits. Now, now it's de rigueur to see many, many projects going on solar and storage, solar and storage. But now you're seeing more and more companies say, we're going to go and retrofit existing storage installations because of this thing called negative covariance, which is, it's kind of like drinking beer. The first beer is good. The second one's okay. By the fifth one, not so much utility left there. Same thing. As you add more and more solar into the system, you decrease the value of solar overall. And so prices come down, the net value of the next unit coming on board because you start to saturate the system. But if you can move 
those solar rich hours of the day, that energy to the evening, now there's a lot of value there again. So those two dynamics, the tax structure and the predictable load shape of solar that allows you to load shift is really helpful. Wind, you see some storage matchups, but not as much as solar. But in both cases, typically the duration is two to four hours in that range. So speaking of duration, have you seen duration increase and what kinds of storage are you seeing come to the market? Well, so lithium ion, you're typically seeing the four hour, you know, somewhere in the two to four hour range. A lot of the bigger solar projects have four hours of duration because that's kind of the length of peak. So that's, that's where your value tends to be concentrated. But as you start to bring in more and more batteries and renewables into the grid, you start to solve for that short term problem of moving four hours. And now you have to start to solve for these issues where what happens when there's a lot of cloudy days in a row or the wind isn't blowing with the intensity that one expected or needs. So then you start to see the need for these eight, 10, 12 hour duration technologies. And so the flow batteries come in. I think San Diego Gas and Electric, there was just an announced uh, a project with the flow batteries with ESS that I saw this morning. You're starting to see uh, companies like high view power that frees air. And when they when the air expands again, it increases 700 times in volume and drives a turbine. And so those are like 10 hour duration machines. And then you're seeing companies like Energy Vault, which stack 35 ton bricks and raise and lower them to deliver energy into the grid. And they're capable of say a 10 hour duration product. And there's others as well. Um, there's a big, a set of projects going into California, which would be compressed air under reservoirs. And those things are also longer duration. And then you see companies like Form Energy with a reversible rust battery technology, which is pretty cool, that might have 100 plus hours of duration. So you're starting to see the first pioneers um, this year, but a lot more deployments to come in the years to come of this longer duration stuff that sort of picks up the baton from the lithium ion, which gets less cost effective as you get to four to six hours. And then these other technologies come in and inherit this longer duration uh, need, which will eventually evolve into as we see more saturation of renewables and lithium covering the shorter duration needs. You mentioned the flow battery. How does that work? Okay, so what you have there is you have a fixed membrane in the middle that fixed the capacity. And then you have these electrolyzers in tanks on each side. So the beauty is, let's say I have 100 kilowatts and you want all kinds of megawatt hours. You just add more and more tanks of electrolytes. And then you flow the material of the electrolytes through that membrane and you generate a flow. And so you have economies of scale around the energy where you want to add more energy, just add more electrolytes. And they're pretty simple in terms of the main stuff that can break is the, the pumps. And yes, the electrolytes need to be replenished occasionally, but uh, depending on technologies, but they can be pretty cost effective for, long, for longer duration as well. And you mentioned the form battery reversing rust. Do you know how that one works? Yeah, so that that's... Um, a. One of the technologists that spun out a Tesla, and they've been in Greentown Labs in Somerville, Massachusetts, outside of Boston, in an incubator, and they've been pretty quiet about it. They announced a couple of years ago a project for Great River Energy in Minnesota to help firm up uh, wind as Great River migrates away from their coal plants and wants to retire those. So they made this announcement, but they hadn't talked that much about the actual chemistry, the reverse uh, rust uh, uh, iron-based chemistry. The beauty of it is it's got no cobalt in it, doesn't have any lithium. So it's it's iron, cheap stuff, right? The question is, and we don't know this yet, how well it will perform, how cost-effective it will be, and how well it works over time. It's still, there's, we're still waiting as a industry to watch the founders of that company sort of pull the wraps off and s announce real hard contracts with prices. Um, but there seems to be a lot of promise there. And that I hate to use that phrase game changer, but if we could find a cost effective storage technology that could give us 100 hours, that would solve a lot of these real challenging issues of the second wave of integration of renewables when you've saturated the landscape and put in as many four hours of batteries as, as you can. And then you have to figure out that longer term stuff. I think Form came out of stealth this summer. I've been trying to watch them too, but I wasn't sure how the technology worked. 
And for those of you listening, I've been watching Energy Vault since 2019, and it's worth just going to their website just to watch how they uh, pick and stack those Lego blocks. Oh, it's marvelous. And they I just wrote about them for Forbes about a month and a half ago. They've changed the configuration. So they used to have that 35-story crane mm-hmm. that's in, in Lugano, Switzerland. And now they've moved to a building structure. It helps with the permitting because really you're just permitting a building. And then inside they have gantries and they're lifting these 35-ton blocks of it's dirt infused with polymerage. So we're, they can even put um, fly ash in it from power plants. In fact, they imported into Europe tons of fly ash from the U.S. and integrated into the dirt and then infused the CMEX, the Mexican company. Um, material scientists developed this polymer. So as they build up the foundation, they've got the raw materials. And the beauty of these things in the polymer is they can stack these on top of each other pretty high so without having the ones down below break apart under the weight. And so they raise and lower them. What they found over the last year or two talking with utilities is they actually like the duration, but they want a more capacity. So what they did was they spread more blocks out horizontally and fewer vertically. So they can still give you all the energy that you need, but in smaller capacity chunks. So when I was watching the video back in 2019, it re- it was a circular and it reminded me of, it almost looked like they were building a turret. Yes. Yeah. Well, the concept is a battery that can construct and deconstruct itself, right? So it's a really neat idea. That, that really is a neat idea. Now, going back to generation for a moment, where do you think we are with the modular nuclear? Uh, great question. So this week, there were two announcements made. One, GE Hitachi just announced that they're going to put in up to 10, with with some other partners, 10 300-megawatt units in Poland by uh, end of the decade. And then, uh, so that was GE Itachi. And then at the same time, almost the same day last week, NewScale, which has the 77-megawatt units that they daisy-chained together, so about, you know, a quarter of the size, right? They announced that they have... um, they're going SPAC. So Floor is a big, the big construction company is a large holder there and they made the announcement. So they're going to go public via a special purpose acquisition company uh, to bring more capital to the game. And they have one project that's slated for Romania for 2027, 2028. And then they have that Utah project, which um, still seems to be chugging along, which would be deployed a little bit after that. So this, I'm very hopeful still that modular nuclear can make it into the market cost effectively. They're going to have to cut their costs. The last ones I saw were 57 bucks a megawatt hour, but they're still moving along. There's still uh, a there there at this point in time. How do they deal with the uh, public perception around nuclear, especially since Fukushima still quite recent in memory? Yeah. I mean, the thing about the modularity is they tend to be, um, higher quality control because it's kind of like modular homes instead of a stick built where you're building a house on site and it's subject to the elements, the rain, the snow, whatever, and nothing's exactly square versus a modular home built in a factory where everything's plumb. These things, you build them in a factory to with a high degree of QC, and then you ship them on, to, to, on site with trucks and trains and that sort of thing. So... In theory, you're going to have higher safety standards. Now, you still have this whole perception issue from Fukushima and Three Mile Island and so on. I don't know how we get away. We're going to have to do a lot more education around that. But at least there are some communities that have said, yeah, we're willing to cite these things here. Um, Certainly some out in Utah. And then I think the last one was announced was either Montana or Wyoming. I can't remember which. Um, And that one was for Terraform. Um, for the other, this yet another company, Bill Gates' backed company. So <clears throat> still some uh, more than a little bit of life left in that industry. But yes, we're going to have to deal with those perception issues. The other cool thing was announced recently was uh, Commonwealth Fusion here in Massachusetts just got $1.6 billion of funding uh, for fusion power because they figured out how to create the magnetic bottle, a small one that could contain you know, with magnets that could contain a fusion reaction. And so their goal is to have net output by the end of the decade of of energy output by the end of the decade. So some really interesting stuff going on on that fusion fission side of the table. Now, you mentioned timeline when it comes specifically to modular nuclear. 
Quote in your book, page 136, the investments people have to make are very large and they don't pay off immediately. In a culture that values fast returns on everything, how do you make long-term investments? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think part of that is you have have to recognize that a lot of what we have done as a society, mostly unintentionally, but now we know what we're doing, is whether we're flying a jet plane or whether we are generating power with emissions, we're not paying full freight. We're asking future generations to pay costs that we're unwilling to pay, which is carbon output, right? And global warming and all the economic damage that creates in a future scenario. And so the first thing you do to create a more stable planning environment is say, let's figure out some cost of carbon. And hopefully from one administration to the next, you'd have continuity. I know that's a pipe dream, but in a perfect (laughs) world, what you do is first say, let's figure out what kind of damage we're creating and put a price on that so we can start to avoid it. And then that would give investors in nuclear plants and others a clearer view as to where this goes. The other thing that can obviously happen and has happened in the past, and in fact, the Vaudel plant in Georgia was the only one that got the DOE loan guarantees last year, if I'm right, um, is what the U.S. has done for a long time with nukes, which is to create loan guarantees and some kind of certainty that the government will stand behind this tech dev as it, and actual deployment as it moves forward because we're trying to solve this carbon problem. So I think a lot of this actually has to emanate at the federal level in terms of these different sets of policies that create the certainty in the minds of investors. Now, I'm going to go through your book, a few different questions from there. I'm looking at uh, a quote here on page 61. You can't train a model only on success. Unfortunately, there is no journal of failed experiments and nobody would publish it anyway. What are some of the experiments you've seen this past year that you think may end up in that journal of failed experiments? Oh, you know, I love that quote from Kristen Person at at, uh, LBL. She's the material scientist there. And she's talking about how robots are are actually better at synthesizing materials than humans are because they can do it 24-7. They're trying to make new compounds that have never existed in the history of the world. So their types of failures are, oh, we tried to synthesize this material and it didn't work but we leave this data exhaust behind us, which then AI in theory could mop up and use to triangulate and get closer to finding those better molecules, which we're working to create to make better wind turbines, better solar panels, et cetera. I think the, the failures that we see more visibly tend to be things like Solyndra, you know, with a DOE loan guarantee program a few years ago. And what we typically do as a society, Raj, is we use those to say, see, the whole thing doesn't work, um, often for political reasons and so on. And so I think one of the things we have to think about when things fail is, first of all, we need to understand that we, as a learning society and a group of individuals and companies and countries trying to solve this carbon thing, that failure is inevitable and, in fact, should be embraced as part of the necessary outcome of what we're trying to do rather than say, oh, let's jump the whole endeavor. It's a different way of thinking about it. Um, I can't see that this year there are any really critical technological failures or companies that went bust where I looked at them and said, see, that that didn't work. I mean, you, you see companies like the flow battery companies that are struggling to stay alive in the space because they're competing against that behemoth of lithium ion batteries coming out of largely China, but Asian companies and now gigafactories in the U.S. as well, where we're just talking about huge scale and some of these other companies having to compete against that. But specific failures, there's, there's really nothing that comes to mind this year other than maybe the legislative failure that we were not moving forward with Build Back Better, making the investments that I think are going to be critical in decarbonizing the economy now rather than later. You know, it's interesting you mentioned our view of failure, I think there's a concept of failure that I like personally, and it's the idea of failing forward. Mm-hmm. And I had someone put a good image in my mind recently that walking essentially is falling forward. And I thought, what an, what an interesting way to look at, you know, perhaps failure. Yeah, and running's falling forward faster. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I just think in some senses, I sometimes watch the dialogue and listen to the conversations and, and just say, please give me a little bit more maturity. Let us have a higher degree of trust that we are well-intentioned trying to solve these problems. And therefore, let us have a little bit more patience and willingness to tolerate things that don't work. For example, the outages in, say, California a couple of years ago, um, because they had issues with imports and some solar and they'd underscheduled and so on, or what happened in Texas, where the very first knee-jerk reaction with the wind, with the, um, the cold snap was to say, see, it was the wind turbines. That, to me, is such an immature, uh, unformed conversation that I, I think I'm getting too old, Raj, because I lose patience for conversations that don't have wisdom behind the desired outcomes we're trying to achieve. I'm just, I get tired of that over time. Likewise, Peter, and I think, you know, those fall into the category, if it bleeds, it leads. Yes. And those kind of headlines give people the opportunity to point their fingers and almost, you know, hang their hats on that particular situation. Unfortunately. But you just have to step back and say, look, what is it we're trying to accomplish? And that is to create that Goldilocks climate of the future that we, or to maintain that Goldilocks climate that we've been able to live in and thrive in over the last couple hundred years as a society, not too hot, not too cold. And you shift everything three degrees, you know, to the warmer side of things, and you potentially face a lot of geopolitical instability, a lot higher costs, insurance costs get higher, a lot of economic uncertainty. So if you step back and say, this is what we are trying to solve for, that requires an awful lot of patience and forgiveness and tolerance for risk that we are not always evidencing today. I agree, specifically around geopo- geopolitical risks and had a conversation recently specifically around climate refugees. So I asked this young lady, when you think of a climate refugee, who do you think of? And they started mentioning countries around the world, and I try to bring it closer to home. You know, recently the, the tornadoes in Kentucky, we had the Katrina many years ago, fires in California, and I said, if these weather patterns continue, your climate refugee is not going to be someone on your side of the world. It's going to be someone in a neighboring state. Yes, I just saw some something, an article about two weeks ago where some communities are talking about planning an orderly retreat from the coastline here in the United States. An orderly retreat from the coastline. Is that a permanent retreat? Yeah, because with sea level rise, like I'm looking out right now, out of my window, I'm looking at a lighthouse and a spit of land that every three or four years during a nor'easter, if you haven't left, you're not leaving. They'll send Humvees in to try and evacuate people, but they can't get them at a certain point when a nor'easter comes in because it's too dangerous. I was talking with a woman there one day and I said, did you spend the night here last night? I'd come down. There was two inches of ice plastered on the side of people's homes from the spray that had frozen. And she said, well, we decided to stay. And then when the kayak hit my kitchen window, that's how high the water was, I decided it was time to leave. So I opened the door and the ice and the salt water were up as high as the step. And I realized, oh no, it's too late. And if they'd had like a gas main break or some kind of fire, they all would have been stuck out there with no assistance whatsoever. I know people who live down there who have already sold their homes and moved because they think climate change is going to make that a more difficult place to live within the next few decades. So, and we're looking at $30 million worth of seawall repairs in my local town. So yes, I think this is something all these coastal communities up and down the entire coastline are going to be facing in real terms, insurance costs, other things like that over the next couple of decades within our lifetimes. So, Back to the book. Mm-hmm. How has the book done this year? What are some of the comments you received regarding it? You know, it was really fun because, well, first of all, it was a little bit scary. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But the cool thing was I had over two dozen subject matter experts volunteer to review every chapter, and they helped keep me from stepping in it. But still, that day it was published, the 15th of June, you're still like, oh, what if there's some fatal flaw in there that reveals me to be the idiot I fear myself sometimes to be? Well, luckily, 
That hasn't been the case. And so far anyway. And I got a I got a LinkedIn today from someone who said to me, This person recommended your book. I've been in the artificial intelligence space for a long time, for decades, and I wanted to figure out whether I could get involved in the power industry. And this person said, read Pete's book because it'll give you a primer in terms of how all the pieces fit together and the challenges. And so he said it was really helpful in that regard. And he said, what I was really surprised at was how fragile the grid is and how interconnected it is. He said, but now I'm thinking about trying to bring my big data AI background into the grid to try and solve some of these problems, especially around distributed energy resources. I had another woman who was, um, she came into the industry from outside and was just hired by a consulting company. And she said they gave her the book as her onboarding. And she said, thank you. You allowed me to consolidate my knowledge really, really quickly, which would have taken me a long time. And that was really the point of this whole thing was I looked around the whole space 10 years ago, Raj, when I left Constellation as a former SVP there in demand response. And arguably, I knew a lot about that space, but I didn't know how the rest of it fit. And so that was the goal was to try and take this patchwork of really disarticulated knowledge in my head and try and synthesize it and figure out where all the connections were so that other people didn't have to go through the process. And thus far, I've been really pleased by the response, both from professionals in the space, but also from newcomers who, who know that the power grid is really essential and is really cool, right? Want to get into this because they know this is where the action is. And the book has helped them figure out maybe where they want to be in that space. You know, I think that comment regarding the consolidation is, is spot on. I like the way you've woven the entire book together. If you had to or had the opportunity to add something to it, what would that be? I'd put more in now about hydrogen um, because that's evolved just in the last uh, year since <laughs> I'd almost finished up the manuscript. That's just moving ahead at enormous um, levels of, of uh, investment. I mean, there's a half a trillion dollars worth of projects that have been announced in hydrogen um, over the last, say, two years or so. So I, I would have covered that more, some of the complexities and the challenges there and laid that out so readers could understand it. Um, and maybe given a little bit more of a nod to fusion, but just because of the facts on the ground that have occurred since the book was published. So I don't feel like I missed a lot at the particular point in time when I submitted the manuscript. But this is, I used to joke that the first line of the book should be, by the time you read this book, half the information will be outdated. But fear not, dear reader, that the trends, the underlying trends and dynamics won't be. And that's going to be the case for a long, long time to come. I could rewrite the whole book in three years. The basic precepts would still be there, but the stories would be different. Well, let's do a quick quick um, three minutes on hydrogen, blue, green, gray differences, and where you see the opportunity there. Okay, so gray is with steam methane reformation. You take basically that CH4 molecule and you drive out the carbon uh, and you're left with the hydrogen. And the problem is that carbon goes up in the atmosphere as CO2. Uh, and unless you carbon, unless you capture it, then it makes it blue hydrogen. You've got the gray hydrogen. So that's about a buck a kilogram right now. The gray hydrogen costs multiples of that. Um, there aren't that many. I'm, I'm sorry, blue costs multiples of that. There aren't that many blue projects. Although uh, I think it was Air Products announced a multi-billion-dollar blue hydrogen um, undertaking in the Gulf Coast of the United States, and there are a lot of European companies doing that. Green is the concept of taking renewable energy with electrolyzers and splitting water into H2 and O. And the challenge there is when you take the electrolyzer, you take, let's say you take 100 units of energy, you run them through the electrolyzer, you separate out the hydrogen, then you either have to compress or liquefy that hydrogen, then store it, transport it, and then put it through a fuel cell or put it through a power plant. And by the time you get to the other end of that equation and turn that back into energy again, you've lost roughly two-thirds of the raw energy you put into it, which is a pretty difficult challenge, a hurdle to overcome economically. Not impossible, but difficult. It certainly puts you at a cost disadvantage. But my thesis is, based on what I'm seeing out there, the power grid can wait a little while for this because we still have to figure out the shorter duration stuff that fit, still there's a lot more lithium ion storage to come in. Then there's the form energies and the high view powers and all those companies like that. But in the meantime, 
The real challenge right now for decarbonization is in heavy industry, particularly steel, which is 7 to 8% of global CO2 emissions. And that's from burning coal and coke to smelt iron ore, which drives out that oxygen atom or molecule in the iron ore, right? That oxygen combines with carbon CO2. What you can do is you can take hydrogen through a direct reduction process, infuse hydrogen into the iron ore, it combines with O2 and separates out as steam clouds, water, right? Which is what SSAB and ArcelorMittal and ThyssenKrupp and a lot of companies are now working on. They've already developed their pilots in Europe. Hybrid, for example, is a multi-megawatt facility north of the Arctic Circle in Sweden. Now they're going to do like a 50-megawatt um, DRI one. After that, you get sponge iron that comes out of that process. You put that into an electric arc furnace the same way you do with steel scrap. The great news here is costs are coming down. Yeah, they're still expensive. But you have a lot of the car companies, Volvo and others, that have said, whatever you can produce, we'll take it because we want to have carbon-free chassis for our electric vehicles. And so what will probably happen is we'll scale the whole electrolyzer space with the investments around steel and cement manufacturing, heavy industry, that those hard-to-abate sectors. And then as those costs come down, you'll see more cost-effectiveness in the power industry. The analog, very similar to what happened with electric vehicles, which is the batteries got cheap, not because we were putting them in the grid, but because we were putting them on wheels. And then as we got more and more volumes of EVs, costs come down, now it makes more sense to put batteries in the grid. So I think the same thing happens with hydrogen, only it's heavy industry, costs come down, equal the electrolyzers get cheaper, balance of system investments and technologies get better, and then it's more ready for the grid of the future. I appreciate you breaking that down. I want to switch on to something else you said earlier. You mentioned new scale. You mentioned a SPAC with Floor, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This year, many of the companies that went public via SPAC, specifically in the clean tech, green tech sector, if you look throughout the entire year, they're down significantly from January, February. As we shift into 2022, not looking for stock advice, I'm looking for, I'm asking because I want to get a sentiment of individuals that have invested in these companies that kind of feel like, maybe in the conversations I've had, some feel like we're approaching a clean tech two bubble. What are your thoughts on what happened this year and where you see us going to 2022? Well, I think there's a real vast difference between speculation and investment, Right. The, the former I define as people who sort of take a flyer for high risk, high reward. And so a lot of people bought into SPACs because for a while they just weren't falling to earth and it seemed like they were defying gravity. And so, oh, might as well take a flyer on that, right? And so most of those did revert back to some kind of a norm. Um, so not so good. Um, but, but, but that's the short-term stuff. I mean, if you step back, and this is what I do with my portfolio, and assume this that the underlying investment principle for me is I don't argue with atmospheric chemistry, right? I don't argue with what the International Panel on Climate Change says, and I don't argue with the report, you know, the, the U.S. assessments for climate change. There's an issue there. It's getting worse. We're going to need to fix it. And somewhere on the order of $100 trillion will be spent between now and 2050 in decarbonizing the entire global economy the most challenging thing humanity's ever collectively tried to accomplish. When you understand that there are very few tailwinds in life that are that clear. One is that the baby boomers are getting older, so you might as well invest in all kinds of drugs because they're going to need them, right? That's a pretty clear investment thesis, and it's pretty incontrovertible. Same thing with atmospheric chemistry. So my belief is, yeah, there were these short-term perturbations, hype, a lot of hope, that sort of thing. But ultimately, the underlying fundamental value is going to be there in this broad basket of clean tech stocks because we don't have a choice as humanity. We have to decarbonize our economy. Therefore, as long as you're not picking one particular sector or one particular company, if you think about the whole space and, and balance your investments accordingly, you probably can't lose. So where do you see us going 2022? Um, well, <laughs> interest rates are going to get tighter. So I think there's, you know, overall, I do have some concerns just about the, the, the entire investment portfolio overall. 
I think obviously if the Build Back Better thing gets approved in some way, shape, or form, notwithstanding the hiccups of this past weekend when Senator Manchin said he wouldn't support it in its current form, I'm optimistic. Um, you see, though, for example, Wood McKenzie and Solar Energy Industries Association saying, Association saying, okay, with uh, high cost of shipping and costs of polysilicon and all the constituent elements, steel and everything. Solar costs for the first time in the last 10 years have actually increased costs of modules and installed solar. And so they've cut their forecast by what I think 25% for next year. We had really healthy growth this year and now it'll be still some growth, but not like it was expected to be. I think we're going to see those kinds of challenges. I think we're going to see battery costs under some pressure especially as we get more models and more demand out there. Supply chain will have difficulty catching up just the simple amount of lithium and cobalt and um, class one nickel that we're going to need, et cetera. I think those things are going to start to rear their ugly heads and see some price pressure there. So it wouldn't surprise me if equities are under a little bit of pressure in 2022, but I think the reversion to the norm is ultimately when society invests a lot of money in certain spaces, Spaces efficiencies evolve and profits tend to increase over time. So 2022 may be a little bit rough. I'm sort of buckling up for that, but I don't hold for 2022. I hold for 2025 or 2030. Well, like you said in your book about making long-term investments. Exactly. Now, we've covered many sectors. Which sector most excites you and why? You know, the... uh, Storage One does because it's the inevitable or necessary dance partner of renewables. You need more storage to integrate more wind and solar into the mix. So that one, I'm really intrigued. I was pleased to see, for example, what do we put in? 3,500 megawatt hours of storage in the United States in Q3. I think in 2019, the total for the whole year was 777 megawatt hours for the entire year. So that trajectory looks like it's really going to take off. We're going to do really well in Q4, and then 2022 looks pretty solid there. I'm also super excited about electric vehicles. I think next year they will truly come of age. The number of makes and models coming out there with decent range and nice-looking cars so that Tesla is not anymore like this incredible outlier in terms of the technology and the beauty of what they've created. I think a lot more companies are coming into the space with really nice product. The Ford F-150 Lightning, just that one knocks my socks off. The fact that a car can power a home for three to five days, depending upon the size of the battery. I think that vehicle to X capability, by the way, is going to be inevitable. Once you see it in the market, everyone's going to want it. So I'm excited about the EV space. And then the hydrogen space, I'm looking to 2022 to see the first real steel in the ground projects that show us that this is more than hype there's reason for hope here and that we start to see the trajectories that we expect. We see the first footings in the ground, if you will, for that industry to move forward and demonstrate the potential that it may be able to reach. So storage, electric vehicles, and hydrogen are the spaces that I'm most interesting watch to watch in 2022. You know, it's interesting you mentioned EV. I really enjoyed the story in your book about you buying your EV sight unseen. <laughs> Well, how could you not? First of all, I had a tree fall on my Prius, 100-mile-an-hour winds, hadn't seen that before. And then I'm flying down to New Orleans, and there's an ad on the JetBlue TV that says you can get one of these cars for 1000 down and 79 a month. I ended up paying 130 because I wasn't military or a recent college grad. But I knew there were a limited amount of them. And so I called around and finally found one dealership that was getting a shipment because another dealership had gone bankrupt. And so afterwards, Raj, I got that deal and then I started to research it and see who else had gotten the deal. And I think there were only a couple dozen people in the country that availed themselves of it because it was one of these compliance, zero vehicle compliance type things. Mm -hmm. And so it was a real strange little short term perturbation in the marketplace that I, I never win the lottery. But in this one, I did. And the other day I was driving into town. And I said, wait, Julie, to my wife, I said, I thought we had 140 miles of the range on the car. Now it shows 106. And she goes, yeah, that's because I just turned the heat on. (laughs) So, you know, in the book, you share some of your stories about your apprehensions about going long distance. 
Yeah, it was like kind of like that Kramer, um, you know, in um, Seinfeld, <laughs> where he where he drives the car with the he he gets that goes to the car dealership, gets the car which only has a little bit of gas, and mm-hmm. keeps on seeing if he can make it to the next exit before he runs out. I did a couple of my trips, um, the one in the winter time to the Wind Technology Testing Center, and then in the one one in the summer to go and see my uh, panels in a community solar farm in another direction. In both cases. I was getting down a little bit to the wire in terms of how much electricity I still had left in the car. And in both cases, I turned off the climate control to extend the range. But for me, it's less of an annoyance and more fun because I'm a techno geek. The average consumer is not going to stand for that nonsense. The good news is now more and more cars are putting in heat pumps like Tesla has done, which is a much more efficient way of heating and cooling the vehicle than drawing on the battery itself for the technology, you know, that we've been doing so far. And you mentioned, you know, V2X, vehicle to X. I had David Slutsky from Fermata Energy on the show last year. That that idea, that concept to me is phenomenal. And you mentioned also the Ford Lightning with the three days. I'm super excited about that sector too and just seeing you know, what we can do. Again, I'm in Texas here and we experienced what we experienced in February, but the idea of being able to run your home off a vehicle that's parked in your garage for maybe a day or two, is just phenomenal. Yeah, it is. And also vehicle to grid. You know, Jim Farley from Ford, the CEO, he had a tweet recently where um, one of their hybrids saved a wedding because the power system had gone out at the wedding and they were able to generate electricity from the hybrid. And apparently people did that in the Texas event as well. And and so, you know, you start to see these new value propositions. So I think what's going to happen is my belief is that all vehicles will eventually be vehicle to home capable. And then at the same time, starting with school buses and other fleet vehicles, vehicle to grid. So everyone's like, nah, that's not going to happen. Well, a couple data points. This summer, a school bus in Beverly, Massachusetts was playing with National Grid, interacting, and they delivered, it was a Thomas-built school bus, you know, your classic big school bus that you see on the road all the time. They delivered over 50 events, three megawatt hours back to the grid this summer when it was needed. Um, Montgomery County, Maryland is leasing 320 plus school buses from a third party. They're all vehicle to grid capable. And then other companies are now figuring this out. But most interesting to me so far was this announcement a couple of weeks ago. There's this Midwestern transit company that leases school buses to schools. And they just signed an agreement with SEA, electrification, um, to retrofit thousands, I think it was 10,000 diesel school buses, rip out the diesel, put electric in, and make them all vehicle to grid capable. And so if you think about it, it probably starts with school buses. Why? Because they're on a fixed schedule, right? They pick up kids from six in the morning to eight or whatever, and then they're dormant until one or two in the afternoon. Perfect for the California duck curve. You could tummy tuck the duck all during the middle of the day, absorbing that energy. And then if you're vehicle to grid, you drop the kids off, you're done by four or five. Now you release all those electrons back into the grid in the evening in a place that's solar saturated like California, then charge later on midnight or one o'clock in the morning or whatever for your morning run and then recharge in the afternoon, again, taking that solar off the system. And so I think there's some really interesting opportunities for vehicle to grid in the fleet sector, starting with school buses. And then ultimately, if you fully electrified every light truck and passenger vehicle in this country, you'd have roughly 30% of today's consumption. So that's an awful lot of electrons sitting there in vehicles that today are utilized, what, 3% of the time, 4% of the time, the rest of the time they're sitting idle. So it strikes me that anybody who's driving to work, there's going to be V2G chargers there. I just think there's this enormous opportunity to provide services to the grid and flatten the grid. The grid today, Raj, the top 1% of demand that we have to meet during those peak periods costs about 8% of our total infrastructure. So if we can find ways to use vehicles and other assets, other distributed resources to push down that top 1% of demand, that's a lot of waste we can eliminate, which can then be invested elsewhere in in the grid. You know, you've painted a very exciting future and I want to start wrapping up, be respectful of your time. So I have to end with the same question I've asked you a couple other times, maybe a little bit different. 
why what keeps motivating you what keeps you excited oh you know what keeps me excited is the sense of possibility look this is a serious thing we're up against and some days you think maybe we really can't get out of this decarbonization box fast enough but every single day i'm gifted to have conversations like this or something similar with uh, new graduates out of college or university or grad school or you know, someone working on a really interesting business model or technology. This is such a fundamentally challenging three-dimensional game of chess. And every time you look at that three-dimensional board, someone's put new figures on there that you don't even recognize, right? So from an intellectual challenge, it's just enormously fun. And then we're gifted to have so many really talented and passionate people in this space. It is a it is a self-select domain of just a lovely group of people that I feel super blessed to work with every day. And, and I love going on LinkedIn and just seeing what's the new conversation or what's the latest thing that people are trying to solve. The sense of possibility that people bring to this is just wonderful and keeps me energized in ways I just wouldn't have thought possible. Well, likewise, Peter, I feel very fortunate to speak to you and to have you in my corner. It's been a great year. I look forward to 2022 being another wonderful year and catching up with you again soon. Well, thank you. I, I, I love what you bring to the energy conversation. Your, your passion and your sense of humanity is just a, a great thing to be engaged with. So please keep it going. Thank you, Peter. And also want to end with, if you reach out to me on Twitter, Raj underscore Daniels, first, uh, let's say five people, I will get a copy of Peter's book signed and to you. Oh, which we forgot to mention is called The Energy Switch. <laughs> That's right. The Energy Switch. We talked about it. We didn't mention the name, but there you go. The Energy Switch by Peter Kelly Detweiler. Peter, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Raj. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.